Welcome to this episode of Anesthesia on Air, the podcast from the Royal College of Anesthetists. My name is Ashwini Keshkamar, and I'm a specialty doctor in anesthetics at Darrant Valley Hospital, Dartford and Gravesham NHS Trust, Kent. And I'm also the council member at the Royal College of Anesthetists. Today, I'm joined by Dr. David Bogard, whom I'm honored to interview. Dr. Bogard is a recently retired consultant anesthetist at Nottingham University Hospitals NHS Trust with a special interest in obstetrics. Previous posts include president of the Obstetric Anesthetist Association, editor-in-chief of anesthesia, and vice president of the Association of Anesthetists of Great Britain and Ireland. With a higher qualification in law, he is an active medical legal practitioner and speaks internationally on topics related to risk management, negligence, manslaughter, consent, and standard setting. Welcome, David. Thanks very much, Ash, and thank you very much for inviting me on. So without further delay, let's dive into the topic for today. And the topic for discussion today is no trace equals wrong place. The college receives reports to prevent future deaths from the coroner when the coroner is concerned that future deaths could occur unless action is taken. So the Royal College of Anesthetists recently received a coroner's report where an esophageal intubation took place and was not recognized in time to save the life of the patient. We know unrecognized esophageal intubation is fatal, but it is avoidable. Unfortunately, it can still happen. So David, can you tell us about the background of this campaign, which was first launched in 2018? Uh, yes, thanks very much, Ash. Um, no trace equals wrong place was essentially the college's response to two prevention of future death reports from coroners related to the deaths of two individual patients in 2016, uh, Peter Saint and Sharon Grierson. Uh, and the details uh, relating to their deaths are available on the uh, uh, judiciary.gov website. And uh, I would recommend anybody who wants to know more to go there to find out about them. But essentially, these were two patients uh, in whom a tracheal tube was misplaced in the esophagus and in whom this went unrecognized. And one of the reasons it went unrecognized was because it was assumed that the flat end tidal carbon dioxide trace was because they had both arrested and there was therefore no cardiac output. Uh, and so the video was put together by Professor Tim Cook uh, to demonstrate specifically and to emphasize the fact that uh, in a cardiac arrest state, uh, there will still be an end tidal carbon dioxide trace. It will be attenuated, but it will still be present. It's present during CPR, and it is even present when there is no CPR going on at all, just because ventilation of the lungs will still cause uh, carbon dioxide uh, to be detected. So if there is no trace at all, even in the presence of a cardiac arrest, we have to assume that the tube is in the wrong place until proven otherwise. We know there are other causes for uh, end tidal CO2 traces to go flat, uh, but the commonest cause remains esophageal intubation. And most importantly, the potentially fatal and correctable cause, as you so rightly say, Ash, 
is unrecognized esophageal intubation. So we must assume esophageal intubation until it is proven not to be the case. And that's where that phrase, no trace equals wrong place, comes from. That reminds me, David, uh, when I was training years ago, we had a campaign saying, if in doubt, take it out. And now uh, we do have this campaign. So what checks uh, would you recommend after uh, we have intubated a patient? So um, I also was taught, uh, if in doubt, take it out. Uh, and I started my training many, many, many years before you did, Ash. Uh, and of course, the reason it was put that way, and I'm sure almost every anaesthetist watching or listening to this podcast has had remembers the phrase is because when I started there was no such thing as an entitled CO2 trace there was no capnography uh, and so we had to use our clinical judgment to determine whether a tube was in the correct place or not uh, and so the phrase if in doubt take it out uh, was around then sticks today and is as important now as it ever was uh, because you need to bear that in mind as well. And it just emphasizes the more specific message of no trace wrong place with respect to capnography. Uh, and so I guess I would say to people uh, who are uh, intubating tracheas uh, now is what I've always said is that you assume, always assume the tube has gone down the wrong hole until proven otherwise. So always start with a high index of suspicion. Do not assume just because you've seen it go between the cords that it has remained between the cords and has not somehow taken a different route. Um, do not assume because it's a grade one intubation that the tube is in the right place. Uh, use capnography. Capnography is absolutely the gold standard. As I say, it wasn't around when I started, but it is the most specific and most sensitive tool probably ever introduced in the history of medicine. And it's specific and sensitive for something which kills the patient if it's not recognized and which causes no harm if it is recognized. It's incredibly important. So yes, tube misting. Yes, listening to the lungs. Uh, but capnography is the gold standard. Never accept a flat capnograph trace uh, without responding in a way that immediately prioritizes the possibility of esophageal intubation. Uh, and if you suspect esophageal intubation, if in doubt, take it out, uh, get somebody else to look as well. If you've got a video laryngoscopy, if you're using video laryngoscopy, then other people can see the tube going down the trachea as well. But always, as ever, maintain good communication with your team, summon help if you're in a crisis situation, uh, and make sure that you exclude esophageal intubation before anything else. Thank you, David. Uh... You, you were talking about communication and um, team working. So we know from experience that when in an emergency situation, the teams that do well are those that communicate clearly and openly without hesitancy. So can you please share your thoughts and advise us on how we can build robust systems in place so that it is easy to do the right thing and difficult or rather impossible to do the wrong thing? Well, firstly, I'm not an expert on human factors, uh, but there are experts on human factors out there and we should listen to them. 
secondly, I think you mentioned quite rightly that there has been a recent uh, uh, Prevention of Future Deaths report come to the Royal College in relation to the death of a patient. And at the time we are discussing this, there will be a session on that specific death at the upcoming uh, Winter Symposium, which will almost certainly have been and gone by the time anybody is listening to this podcast. Uh, it, that was a death that occurred uh, uh, in very recent years indeed, in an anaesthetic room. Uh, there was capnography, it was flat, the esophageal intubation went unrecognized for the uh, essential period during which the patient could be saved. Uh, and one of the key features of that very disturbing case is that, as well as the consultant anaesthetist who initially uh, intubated the esophagus, during the crisis period, four other anaesthetists, two trainees, uh, a, uh, an associate specialist and a consultant entered the anaesthetic room. Uh, and it was uh, only eventually the consultant who, uh, after um, uh, perhaps uh, inappropriate prioritization of another task that uh, they were directed to, who detected that the tube was in the wrong place. Uh, all those who went into the room suspected that the tube was in the wrong place but were uh, reassured by the uh, by the view of the consultant in charge that it was correctly placed and this is all about communication and hierarchy as you so rightly say ash uh, and it is imperative i think i would use that word imperative that we are uh, feel able to challenge robustly up a hierarchical slope when we suspect that something has is uh, has gone amiss uh, Nobody suggested in this case, the coroner included, that the consultant in charge of the case was in any way resistant to upward challenge. Upward challenge did occur, but probably not as robustly as it should. Uh, and it was that that led to the, the death of the patient. It struck me forcibly listening to the inquest that had any one of those four anaesthetists gone into the room in different circumstances, they would instantly have detected the esophageal intubation and corrected it. It was the problems with communication between the team, problems with the team working that led essentially to the death of this patient. Uh, and that's a very difficult situation to come to terms with. We try to do team training to prevent this multidisciplinary team training. Uh, we, we stress the importance of shallow hierarchies, but this kind of thing still occurs. Um, and I would direct anybody listening to this to the college website, actually, because there's now uh, under the safety tab, there's a prevention of future deaths tab. And that uh, includes, as well as no trace equals wrong place video, uh, a very good uh, video indeed by a, an anaesthetist who is a human factors expert, Fiona Kelly, in which she talks about ways of prevention of, uh, of this kind of crisis. Of course, we should try to prevent esophageal intubation in the first place, but we should have systems, robust systems in place to enable communication uh, to take place and team working to, to correct it when it does occur. And Fiona talks about how best to achieve this. And I do really strongly recommend people view that video. Finally, on the website, in the same location, you will find uh, a, a flashcard simulation presentation with three different scenarios presented on single flashcards, which can be used to very quickly simulate uh, this kind of uh, failed intubation or, or esophageal intubation scenario uh, and allow uh, people to, as it were, practice their team working. So thank you so much, David, for pointing out to all the educational resources out there. Uh, my next question to you would be then, with all the educational resources, why do you think these events still occur? 
what do you think are the barriers that cause these incidents? Well, thanks, Natasha. It's, it's a really good question, and it's one that has uh, greatly exercised me, particularly in respect of this uh, last uh, um, uh, patient death, or the most recent patient death that you uh, that, that you uh, remarked upon in your introduction. Uh, it's not the only uh, um, unrecognised esophageal intubation death, by the way, in the UK in the last couple of years. There have been others as well, which I've learned about from uh, uh, from other medical legal practitioners. Uh, and it greatly saddens me that we're still in a position where we have all the tools available for uh, what should be 100% ability to prevent this from occurring, and yet it still happens. So all I can talk about really is, is, is what I've picked up from both from uh, um, Fiona Kelly's uh, lecture, which I've pointed at uh, already, and my own experience related to this most recent death. Um, and it seems um, Fiona rightly points out the importance of uh, design of systems of workplaces, as she says, I think it's 90% of human factors is about design. Uh, and I'm sure she's right. She talks about the easy stuff like making sure everybody can see the monitors, for example. So in the most recent incident, there is no doubt that the crowding within the room meant that some people couldn't see the monitors uh, at critical times. So simple stuff like that. The coroner pointed out as well, uh, quite rightly, that he had evidence that there, were, there was no standardization of monitoring uh, between the theatres and the anaesthetic rooms, it varied even between anaesthetic rooms in this particular trust. And that at least one of the uh, anaesthetists who arrived after the crisis started to occur uh, thought that the lack of CO2 trace was because uh, capnography wasn't being displayed on the monitor rather than it was being displayed what was flat because capnography wasn't a default uh, in that particular monitor in that particular anaesthetic room at that time. Uh, so design is critical. Uh, it may well be also that the ability of more than one person to see where a tube is placed could help as well. And this is where uh, modern tools such as the, the video laryngoscope come into their own. Um, the coroner spoke, I think, quite uh, powerfully about what he called uh, infectious certainty. So the uh, anaesthetist in charge of the most uh, recent uh, patient um, was certain that the tube was in the right place, expressed that to other anaesthetists coming into the room. And that certainty on their part uh, became, as the coroner called it, uh, a, a, an infectious uncertainty that infected other people as they, as they came into the room and heard the message. And we need to be able to fight against that. That's essentially what we know as confirmation bias, I think. Uh, and uh, we need to be able to resist confirmation bias as much as possible. That requires the ability to challenge upwards, and we've spoken about challenging already. Uh, and challenging up a hierarchy is a difficult thing to do. And we have a duty, I think, as trainers and teachers to ensure that uh, hierarchies, while there, are as shallow as possible. I think the people at the top of a hierarchical slope have a duty to listen to those who challenge them. I think the people at the bottom of the hierarchical slope probably have a duty to challenge as well. And I really want to try to enshrine that, I think, in our, our follow-up to this, uh, this most recent death. Um, Fiona Kelly, in her presentation, talks about uh, how much knowing people's first names 
uh, encourages challenge and communication. And I think that's important. She has a, a slide, people uh, having their names on their theatre hat, something we've done uh, in Nottingham for, uh, in, in some areas for some years. Uh, and I think that probably is a help. Uh, she talks about the importance of making room for non-technical skills in technical skills training. So when you're doing simulations, and simulations and team training are hugely important, that the simulation itself needs to make room for inclusion of non-technical skills, the, the, the uh, encouraging the ability to challenge and so on. Um, and she talks about the importance of crisis management. And, and I think she's right in this one specific in that if somebody has been in charge of a case as a crisis has been developing, they may well not be the, the right person to take charge of the crisis once the crisis has been declared. Uh, and uh, Fiona talks about uh, uh, nominating somebody else to be in charge, them standing in the corner of the room, taking their gloves off, putting their hands behind their back, displaying to everyone that they are not taking an active physical part, but that they are in charge of directing the movements of the team. And that may be right as well. And she also talks about several um, mnemonics for ensuring uh, better communication be between the team, including uh, uh, um, pace. When you're challenging somebody, you use this mnemonic pace, where you probe to find out what's going on. Uh, to, in your own mind, you then alert the other people in the room. Uh, you then challenge. Uh, and if that challenge fails to produce a response, you declare an emergency and act upon it. PACE. Uh, these sort of tools may help as well, and they're included in the flashcards uh, in the simulation, which is uh, on the, the page that I referred to at the college website. Um, in the end, we've got all the tools, as I said earlier, for always recognising a of intubation. We just have to make sure there is some way that we implement them 100% of the time, 100% effectively. Uh, and that's the challenge that we face as a profession now. That's very true. Thank you. Thank you so much, David. I think the challenge remains that how we implement it uh, and whether we are heading towards uh, making this as a mandatory requirement. But that is beyond uh, this talk. But coming to my next. So as humans, we, we know we are bound to make errors and situations like this can still occur and situations, uh, especially the unrecognized esophageal intubation, are wholly avoidable. So what would you, uh, you advise to the team involved? How do they spring back from this catastrophic incidents that they have just witnessed? So before, actually, before I go into that question, which I think is very important, I just want to say the other thing that I've been thinking about, and I know the college is considering, is whether to introduce a formalised stop moment after any uh, airway manipulation, particularly after tracheal intubation, where the room completely stops and a formal confirmation is sought that the tube is in the right place with verbal uh, verbal back and forth confirmation as well. And a stop moment may be the way to go, and it may not. We're waiting to, to uh, uh, get more uh, information and feel about that from the experts involved in that sort of uh, intervention. Thanks very much for that uh, question, Ash. I think it's a very important one. Um, I'll address it in a, in, in a, from a number of points of view. First of all, of course, from a medico-legal point of view, and indeed from the point of view of prevention of, of further incidents of this kind, it's hugely important 
to have really robust data about what occurred and when it occurred. Timing points are vital. Uh, and uh, uh, objective data are vital as well. And these will often get lost. So there are still many trusts in the UK that do not have uh, direct uh, automatic outputs from monitors to printouts or into software systems. Uh, and the data that is retained on trend screens on monitors uh, will often drop out uh, at a later date, sometimes days, sometimes weeks down the line. Uh, and I still recommend, even though I'm quite sure there must be some very good uh, uh, law that says you shouldn't do it, I still recommend that somebody in that room should bring up trend screens for the period in question, photograph them with their mobile phone, uh, and get those photographs stored somewhere safe, because they those trend screens can be lost. And once they're lost, they cannot be retrieved. And they are they have helped get to the bottom of a lot of events in the past. Um, the people involved should be uh, stood down and need to write down, while it's as fresh in their memory as it possibly, uh, can possibly be, what happened when it happened. Uh, even before all that, as the crisis is occurring, somebody needs to be set aside to scribe and to note down timing points and events as they occur as well. These are all hugely important when analysing uh, the event in the future. And once that's occurred, it's vital that the all members of the team get good support, whatever that support is going to be. Uh, the Association of Anaesthetists produced a, a glossy called Catastrophes in uh, Anaesthetic Practice. It's quite an old glossy now, but it's still there online. And there's a lot of very sensible advice in that. Uh, I've seen uh, many uh, uh, very major uh, crises and patient deaths in my time as a medical legal practitioner. One of the things that struck me forcibly is the long-term impact uh, that uh, such an event can have upon those involved. And it doesn't matter whether you were at fault, whether you were perif peripherally involved, indeed, whether you were the hero of the moment and went in to rescue it. The impact on each one of those individuals can be very profound indeed. It is really important to try to minimize that impact. Uh, and uh, I'm no expert at how to do that, but we know that there are ways of doing it, including listening and counselling uh, and, and not blame casting. Very important that we do not cast blame. Sometimes blame has to be allocated and that's the job of the courts, but it's not the, the job of inquiries, uh, really. We, we, the purpose of an inquiry is to find out what happened and prevent that sort of thing from happening again and making sure that relatives of individuals who have died, for example, are aware of what happened or what went wrong. They're not about casting blame. Thank you so much, David. I think, I think that was really helpful and very interesting. Sadly, I think we have run out of time and we need to draw this podcast to a close. So thank you so much to Dr. David Bogard for your time and for such interesting discussion on this very important subject of no trace equals wrong place. For further information, um, it's available on the RCOA website. Uh, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Thank you very much for having me, Ash. Thank you for listening to Anesthesia On Air from the Royal College of Anaesthetists. Make sure you don't miss out on the latest episodes by clicking subscribe on your favourite podcast platform. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you give us a review. It helps others find our podcast. 
If there is a topic you'd like us to cover or you'd like to feature in the podcast, please email podcast at rcoa.ac.uk. And finally, if you would like to access more podcasts, as well as videos, e-learning, webinars, and our program of events and courses, you can find them all online at rcoa.ac.uk forward slash education. We hope to see you again soon. Please note, all views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and not those of the Royal College of Anaesthetists.